I am really excited to bring today's guest to you, Scott Edwards, who is a stand-up is it is a podcast called Stand Up Comedy. Your host and MC. You are an author of several books. I think all that's cool. I, I really do. But I got to tell you what drew my attention to your 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 credentials, and that is you did you you create a company called Submarine and Beach Shack. No, 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 Joel. No, I owned a submarine. And I owned a beach shack, two separate companies, and they were purely to have fun and uh, uh, lost my ass on one and, and did okay on the other. But it was all about being a serial entrepreneur, having fun. All right. Because I, I, I do these things for these classes for lawyers. And, and I always like to start off with some kind of nice icebreak kind of question. And I'll ask them, if you had it to do over again, would you pick a different profession? So these are all lawyers. They're trained to be lawyers. But say, hey, look, it, did you mess up when you when you picked your career? And if you could do it over again, would you pick a new career? A lot of them said beach shack or surf shop. And so you have lived the dream. So tell me, why did you give up on your dreams? Oh, I didn't give up. <laughs> I've just, my dreams are constantly changing. So real quick, Joel, I'm a serial entrepreneur. Okay, what, what does that mean? I that when I get an itch, I start a company. Okay. So my first company at age seventeen was a small construction company. Uh, at age nineteen, uh, disco was the thing. So I was doing uh, uh, putting disco into restaurants, and and I was a professional M's, uh, you know, spun records and bouncer. Uh, but the biggie was it when I was twenty four, I started and opened the twelfth. Uh, comedy club in the entire United States and that led to huge financial success and with that money I just wanted to do fun things and one of those was I built and owned a tourist submarine in Monterey California really so you weren't kidding you yeah, actually was... owned a submarine yeah so I was involved with a company called Snuba I'm still an owner it's still out there <laughs> It's underwater snorkeling. It's all over the world. And the guys that developed that were building submarines. And I helped them launch one in Hawaii. And okay. I go, man, this is cool. I want one of these. You, you are <laughs> the first person ever that I know of who has owned a submarine. That, that is cool. Have, have you, it was a lot of fun, Joel, but I lost my butt financially. Uh, but it was, it was just a hoot to do. Uh, we had it for about a year and a half in Monterey, and it turned out the water there is too cold. Okay. We were dealing with algae bloom, so I had to pay a diver to go along with the submarine and clean the windows all the time so the tourists could see the sea lions and the sea otters and the kelp forest, and it was not financially uh. viable. So we took a huge bath financially, and we sold that to the Wrigley Gum family in Catalina Island, and it's still operating today. Wow, that is an amazing story. So Beach Shack, just give me a little bit of a heads up, because I really would oh, like to do it. Oh. Some, someone asked me last week, I would love to have a tiki hut on some beach. That, that's how I want to retire. Tell me what's that, what that was like. I, I got to tell you, that was cool. I was single. I was in my mid-20s. And um, so it's, it, it was at the King Kamehameha Hotel uh, at Kona, Hawaii, the big island. Okay. And it was an actual beach shack on a little beach. We uh, sold sunscreen, we rented kayaks, uh, sold towels and, and all that stuff. 
But I got to tell you, when you're in your mid-20s and single and you got a beach full of women in bikinis, it was a tough job. <laughs> Why? Why did you leave? I, I have to know. What caused you to leave that gig? Well, I owned it with a partner because I actually didn't live in Hawaii. The two of us ran it for about five and a half years. And let's just say he wasn't the kind of partner you can count on. Ah. And after uh, a bit of financial duress, the opportunity came to sell it. And um, I and I mean, the big thing was I wasn't um, going to be single a whole lot longer. So, you know, when you're single, those things are fun. When you have a girlfriend or a wife, uh, they don't like you helping the young bikini-clad women. I, I could see how that might be a problem. And so you were probably wise to, I guess, divest of that investment. But, um, well, I, I want we skipped right ahead. We skipped right past the fact that you started a comedy club. And you are doing the hand signals of 12. I believe I counted 12. And hey, you, you must be a great teacher. You're doing a visual and an audio. So I got both of them. So you were doing a comedy club at 24, and that made you money. That's what I want to talk to you about, the comedy business. And there's so that's, All your books are about comedy. Your podcast is about comedy. It's a great podcast. Since we are talking about it right now, how can our listeners find your podcast? Well, the podcast, thanks for asking, Joel, is called Stand Up Comedy, your host and MC, and the name comes from, I was the MC at my clubs, I had three of them, and every night I would be introduced, here's your host and MC, Scott Edwards. Okay. So my podcast is Stand Up Comedy, your host and MC, it's on all platforms, Apple, Pandora, iHeart, Spotify, and it's a combination podcast, Joel. Every other week, I do an interview with a professional entertainer, and then the opposite week, I actually share comedy from my TV shows and concerts from back in the 80s, because I got a chance to work with Robin Williams, Jerry Seinfeld, Gary Shandling, Jay Leno, uh, you name it, Dana Carvey. Um, they all work for me, even Ellen DeGeneres. Really, Scott, I got to tell you, I, I want to hear so much of what you have to say. I don't even know where to begin. I'm hoping you can help guide me through this conversation because you say so many things. My mind, I like, I'm this ADHD squirrel. I want to go to that, that topic you just brought up. You just mentioned Robin Williams. First of all, that's not on your website. I would have noticed that. I did notice Jerry Seinfeld because he's one of my favorite comedians, second only to Mr. Mork himself, Robin Williams. I, any good stories on those? I got, I got you a good story for Jerry Seinfeld. Not near as good as yours, but any good stories? Well, Robin wasn't actually a paid entertainer. He was uh, already a huge success. And anytime he did a concert in uh, the Sacramento area where my clubs were, he would come over to my club and for free get on stage and do about an hour riffing with the audience. And he did that twice and got a chance to hang with him uh, backstage and, and after the shows. Uh, Jerry was a different story. I was one of the first clubs on the West Coast that he worked. He was a New York comic. He came out to the West Coast. And my Jerry Seinfeld story is he had a, a week booked with me, and he did The Tonight Show and immediately got offered a sitcom. So he had to cancel that week. Well, he did the first year of what was called The Seinfeld Chronicles, uh, became Seinfeld the TV show. And what was so cool about Jerry, and not everybody would do this, he called me up and he goes, hey, yeah, I got a sitcom. I'm a big star now, 
but I had to cancel the week, so I'll come back and work for you for the same money. No way. So he came back and completed the week he had to cancel. And now he'd already been working for me for years, a long time headliner at my club before his fame and fortune. But just the fact that he came back and worked after the success of his TV show was, uh, you know, really special of Jerry to do. That's a great story. The, the the Seinfeld Chronicles. I did not know that was that the original name of his sitcom, or was that like a pilot series that then morphed into the the show? It, it was the the pilot, and the first season was called the Seinfeld Chronicles, and then they dropped that. the Chronicles and just went with Seinfeld after that. So the very first episode where um, you have Jerry and George, or I believe in a laundromat, that was actually the Seinfeld Chronicles. Yeah, they were talking about how many buttons on your shirt you should have. Yes, I remember that episode. All right. How many buttons should be unbuttoned? Is it two or three, which is a little risque? I gotta tell you what, now I'm trying to figure out how many buttons I have buttoned on my shirt right now. Hope I'm not being too risque. Fascinating. So Jerry Seinfeld came back and, and did the gig at your club at the same price. Yeah, no, he he was a, he still is a great guy. What I love about uh, Jay Leno and Jerry Seinfeld and even Bob Saget, sadly, before he passed, was that they were people that worked for me before they were famous. They got famous. And yet, even with their fame, they loved stand-up comedy so much and getting on stage and relating to a live audience and getting that immediate live uh, reaction from an audience, which is way different than television. They were back out on the road. Jay's still touring. Jerry's still touring. And again, uh, my good friend Bob Saget was touring when he passed away. Interesting. I, I tell people I opened for Jerry Seinfeld. So Jerry Seinfeld came here to Kansas City. Was at the Heartland Theater. Have you ever been to the Heartland Theater in Kansas City? No, but boy, getting a chance to open for Seinfeld. I mean, that's well, that's top hold, of your resume. Hold on, hold on here. I'm working on it here. <laughs> I kind of led you down the road. Uh, so, so Jerry Seinfeld came to Heartland Theater, which is the main theater here in Kansas City. You know, it's where you have all the chandeliers from the top, and you have the balcony seats where you know the rich people will sit. That that kind of scenario. Very beautiful uh, venue to to host an event like that, a comedy special. The week before. Uh, I was there for a law firm. They hired me. They rented out the entire Heartland Theater. So I was up there doing my bit for an hour for this law firm. Nothing else happened that week. The next person up on stage was Jerry Seinfeld. So I said, I opened up for him. It took about a week between me and, and Jerry, but still, does that count? That's a great way to tell the story, Joel. I love that. Hey, it works. You got to go with what you got. But um, yeah, no, he definitely is my favorite uh, comedian. And and the, you knew these guys before they were famous. What did his, did his bit change? Or looking back now, when you saw him in your club, was he pretty much the same Jerry Seinfeld that we all now know and love? Yeah, Jerry's one uh, been always very consistent. And what's great about Jerry's material, it was always very relatable because he just talked about anything like shirt buttons or you know pet turtles or one of my favorite uh, early bits was his he was on stage talking about what's with men's pajamas we have cuffs we have a chest pocket what's what's that for a protractor what do we need that in bed for right <laughs> but that material would work just as well today as it did back in 1982 interesting so you, you saw them and would did you talk to Jerry Seinfeld at the very beginning? Did he like say, I, my goal is to have a, 
a comedy, a special on TV or a sitcom. I mean, on your website, you mentioned a little bit about the difference between the comedy business and show business. Do these people see it as different? Like he was a stand-up comic, and then obviously he had immense fame there on TV. Are those different genres? Well, what it is is stand-up comedy. People get into it uh, mostly because we have messed up personal lives. But we get on stage <laughs> for validation from an audience, and we do it through comedy. And every stand-up comic has aspirations. But what I was referring to was it's not always to get a sitcom because you can't control that. I call it getting the golden ticket. You know, if you got a Tonight Show back in right. the 80s, you're almost always offered a sitcom or a show. But I know plenty of really good, really funny comics that never had a sitcom, but they made a great career and a lot of money as road comics. Others became television writers. One guy, Ed Solomon, uh, wrote uh, The Adventures of Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, okay. Men in Black series, Now You See Me series. His name's Ed Solomon. Very, very successful movie script writer. So stand-up comedy was a vehicle to other aspects of show business. All right. So walk me through that, because I, I do open mic nights for at the local comedy clubs here in Kansas City, and there's a lot of comedians out there. I was in New York City, and, and I went and saw a lot of comedians there in open mic nights. A lot of wannabe Jerry Seinfelds, wannabe Kevin Hart. If someone wants to get started out in the comedy business, how do they even begin to go down that road? Now, my road was I, um, uh, I'm a lawyer, and so I, I get to do my comedy bit for lawyers. They need their CLE hours, continuing legal education hours, so I get to charge 250 bucks a ticket. I could not charge 250 bucks a ticket if I were not a lawyer, right? I, I kind of sell that, hey, this is your accreditation right. for your, so you can keep your law license. Most comics don't have a JD by their name. They can't do that. So just walk me through that process. I, I, people ask me all the time, how can they get their start in the comedy business? Well, before I get to that, let me just say, Joel, that a lot of lawyers have the same DNA as entertainment people, especially trial lawyers. Because when you're in a courtroom, what is what are you talking to? The judge and the jury, right. that's an audience. So your job is to engage with them, share some information with them, and bring them to see things as you see them, right? So that is a type of show business because uh, it's just your audience is different. But in comedy, uh, first off, I should say, with and I, this is not a, a rude plug or anything, but I do have a book called 20 Questions Answered About Being a Stand-Up Comic, available on Amazon now. All right. That will help people that are amateurs go pro. And the answer to your question is, it takes dedication, consistency, and persistency. And just like in business, not everybody's going to be a successful entrepreneur or a good salesman. You have to really work at your craft. You have to be consistent at your craft. And in stand-up comedy, that means when you're an amateur, you're getting on every stage you can, getting paid or not, and hone your jokes, take those lumps of coal, and turn them into gems, and then just keep building on that. And if you get the golden ticket, you might get a TV shot. But what happens to most of them is that they just enjoy it as a lifestyle, and they 
entertain groups or do fundraisers or stay in the comedy club circuit and you make a good living, but it's a rough life because you're traveling all the right, time right. and and staying in hotels a lot. But um, most people, just like in entrepreneurs, just like lawyers, how many people take, you know, go to law school, but then end up passing the bar and then end up actually practicing law? Each level you lose people. Right, right. So a lot of people want to go up on an open mic and give it a shot, but the 1% that make it, you know, it's a big Now, when you say separation. to go out and practice your craft, now I, I uh, took this class from Jerry Seinfeld. I believe it was online. Maybe I watched his video talking about it. I kind of forget now the context, but he basically said he does the, the X uh, uh, genre or the X approach. So on his calendar, he makes an X over every day after he writes 10 jokes. And then he keeps that chain going. He never wants to break that chain. He always wants to write 10 jokes a day. And as long as he keeps doing it every single day, he will not break that chain. Then the X's form a chain on his calendar. And after a while, he has, I guess, the makings of a, of a comedy special. Um, now, usually working... Well, I Comedy writing is so important. A lot of a lot of amateurs don't realize. They think you just get up on stage and act like an idiot. Right. No, you got to write funny material, and it's got to be original material. And that's difficult because everybody writes about the same thing. But the secret to Jerry Seinfeld was that he wrote and was really good about everyday things. Men's pajamas, uh, pet turtles, driving in the car, going on an airplane. He could find the funny... But he didn't just make it up on stage. He worked and wrote every day. And that's where that persistency comes in that I mentioned earlier. You have to be committed to writing every day to try to find what's going to work. And it is do, something. Do you have time for a quick side story? Yes, of course. So a good friend of mine, one of my favorite regulars, in fact, I was the first club he ever headlined out of his hometown of Phoenix, Arizona, uh, in August of 1980, he was my opening act, making $150. Gary Shandling. Okay, you may I've heard know of him. him from the Gary Shandling show, the Larry Sanders show. He's in several movies, but the story is Gary was working my club, and he had his Tonight Show appearance coming up, and he goes, Scott. Uh, I want to work out some material, and my club was all about helping support the comics. So I said, you do what you need to do. So Gary went up. He did about 20 minutes of material, proved himself to the audience, right? Right. Then he stopped and he goes, look, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to be on the Tonight Show next Wednesday. I need to work on some material. Do you mind if I try it here? And the audience is like, wow, this is like behind the scenes stuff, right? Right, right. right. So he pulls out these three by five cards and he starts reading off jokes. And he, if he got a laugh, He'd go, oh, okay, I'll work on that. And if it didn't get a response, he'd throw it over his shoulder. Well, that's done. <laughs> and the audience was so thrilled to be a part of this research, this this work, this writing of his show. They were so excited that, you know, pretty soon they knew what was going on and they'd really applaud and laugh if they liked something and they'd boo if they didn't like something. And the audience and Gary had a great time. And then when he got done, he went back into his material and rocked the house because he was amazing. But what was great is all those people in the audience, and I think it was about 140 people that night, were in on something special. And then next, the following Wednesday, he was on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, 
and he did the set that he practiced at the club. Wow. So those 150, those 140 people are going, wow, I was a part of that. You know, I mean, talk about engaging with an audience. It was, it was really a special moment. How does a comedian get that experience of, of an audience? So here in Kansas City, we do open mic nights. But I got to be honest, a lot of these open mic nights are full of people doing open mic nights who are just kind of thinking about their sets. They're not really even dialed in and listening to whoever is presenting. They're thinking about what they are going to do, and then they often leave right afterwards. And I recently did a bit in um, Coronado, California for a convention. And you know, it's, since COVID, we haven't had a lot of conventions, but we're just starting to get back out there. And you're back in front of a live audience. And I'm telling you, it was so much fun. To just feed off of their energy and their their laughter is contagious. I miss that. So, are there different place venues in America where it's easier to get a, a good crowd as compared to just a small handful of open mic nighters? Well, I, I will tell you that from a comedy producer point of view, that whether you have ten people in the audience or my biggest show was twelve thousand. Wow! What no matter the size of the audience, just engaging with those people, having them go with you on the ride, right? So every comic's job, and here's a mistake a lot of amateurs make: they think the stage is about them. It's not. It's about the audience and how are you going to entertain them. Make it so they're not thinking about their bills, not thinking about the bad things happen in life. Your job is to give them a respite from life's tough challenges. Comedy is all about entertainment, about that uh, uh, separation of, of good and bad, and you want to take them on the good. So when I mentioned consistency earlier, a lot of open micers go up a couple times and they go and they just don't realize that they need to connect with the audience and so they don't get those endorphins going because they don't get the laughs going wow. and so they quit right so they quit but somebody like you Joel that's got some talent and you're engaging and you're connecting with the audience then you get that response back guess what you and the audience connect and you get those endorphins going and the energy going that you just mentioned and wow it's a powerful moment it's like a drug right and Tell me if I'm wrong. You want to get right back on stage, right? Oh, absolutely. And that's the thing. I, I tell people, you, you should find a career that you would do for free. I mean, if, if you could find whatever it is you would do for free and to get paid for it, that's the career you should have. Well, that For a lot of people, that's public speaking. When you tell a joke and you get laughter, I have often told people, I don't do drugs, but it's, it's like a drug. I mean, it's a high. I think about it the rest of the week. I wake up in the middle of the night saying, oh, I remember when that joke landed. That's how I'm wired. That's my DNA. And I, I appreciate that you mentioned that because, yeah, that's, that is the feel, that, that's the moment in life you kind of want to get to next. Right. And a lot of the guys that went pro, they, they didn't become famous, but went pro and made a living doing comedy. They will tell you that getting on stage sometimes three or four times a night or at least every night of a week to get that fix, almost that drug addiction fix of endorphins and that connection with an audience. And remember to your listeners that you're not going up in front of your family and friends. You're going up in front of strangers. Right. So you have to get them to like you. You have to connect with them and then entertain them. It's not an easy job, but a really rewarding one. So should should an open micer who's done a good job and kind of hit the circuit, 
he wants to get to the he or she wants to get to the next level. Do you hire an agent? How do you get your name up in the marquee at a casino? How do you get to that that stage? Yeah, no, I, I don't recommend you hire an agent until you're really, you know, you're you're being offered TV shows okay. or jobs or, or something. Um, it, sometimes it's wise to, if you're getting to a certain level, to hire a manager. So the difference between an agent and a manager is 5%. Agents get 10% of your money. Managers get 15% of your money. Okay, all right. All right. <laughs> so, but the, the answer to your question is you have to, you know, really love what you're doing, work at it, write every day, like you mentioned Jerry Seinfeld does and all the other pros do. When you, you know, you start off as an open mic or you might be doing three minutes of material. When Jay Leno worked my club or I did a concert with Jay, he could do 90 minutes nonstop and still have more he could do because he's written so much stuff and he gets such a connection with right. the audience even if he runs, you know, Robin Williams was a master at this. He didn't have written material. What he had in his head was a Rolodex of funny things he has thought and heard. And anything that happened with the audience, he could immediately go to a funny response to it. And that was the genius that Robin had. But not everybody's wired that way. Right, yeah, I think, I think he's special. I'm not sure you could ever learn from Robin Williams. Maybe you can't. I think he's just a genius. I mean, he, I think he could put him anywhere and he would just wow the crowd with his stories and his antics so you you run all these different comedy clubs and how would a, would a person just give you a call and say hey look i've done comedy i want to be in your club and you would say what is your name again i mean how how does that process work well back in the day uh people would send me vhs tapes but uh, <laughs> okay. nobody knows what those are anymore but no you you well that's what open mics are for you have to showcase you have to show that you I, I got to be as a producer that I could watch somebody for 30 seconds, one minute, and I knew if they either had it or didn't okay. have it. And a lot of it is that understanding that, again, as I mentioned earlier on, some people go on stage and think it's about them. They, they want to rant about their miserable lives. They want to talk about what matters to them. And they're totally not connecting with the audience. And those people... You know, even if they get a couple laughs, aren't who you want to support and push in the direction of entertainer. You want somebody that connects with the audience, responds to the audience, or like talks about things the audience can engage with and relate to, and you build a rapport. You know, when Gary Shandling stopped his show and said, hey, I want to read off these cards, how many people would have the respect and the confidence from the audience to do that? Right. To a room full of strangers, right? So there was a couple things going on there. Gary had already shared that he was funny. Right, right. Two, he stopped and asked the audience. That's an unusual dynamic. That's like breaking that fourth wall, right? right? You, you're, you're like, okay, I'm not just an entertainer and you're an audience. We're in this together and I need to work on something. Can I share it with you? And honesty always works with an audience. Even if you make a mistake or, you know, a lot of comics, if you do a bad joke and it doesn't go anywhere, what's the funniest thing to do? Tell the audience, hey, that didn't work. <laughs> right. And then the audience laughs because yes. they realize they're in on the failure. Right. And there's a break of tension too, right? When that happens, like the audience is going, that did not land. That's not funny. 
the comedian recognizes that. Is, oh, yes, thank you. We're all on the same page now. We can all... Yeah. Um, take- I'll, I'll give you a, a contradictory story. Um, there was a comic, um, a political satirist, who went on stage and um, was just talking over everyone's head. He was He was working on his own material. He was talking about people in D.C. and New York. And this is in here in California. And he stopped halfway through the show and said, oh, you guys are just stupid and walked off the stage. And I, I fired his ass. I mean, that was like, <laughs> what do you mean? Why would you disrespect the audience? You're not, you didn't make any effort to engage with them. You didn't do material they could relate to. You were all about spouting off and trying to look smarter than everybody right. in the room. And, you know, so both things can happen. But going back to your original question, amateurs just need to keep getting on stage, keep building material. And trust me, if you get a good, funny 20 minutes, 30 minutes, people will notice. And uh, when you call up a club and say, hey, I'd like to work, I can do 30 minutes over at, you know, Chuckle Hut. Uh, they'll, they'll usually give you a shot. All right. Hey, so on your website, you mentioned uh, what's a fair game question to ask is what is the number one mistake beginners make? And I'm just curious about that. I mean, I've made all kinds of mistakes, but what, which one of my mistakes is number one on your list? Well, in today's comedy, uh, one of the reasons I got out of the business is partially the audience has changed. Uh, they're busy with their phones. They're not, you know, you have to be able to engage with them, but if you, they're so disconnected, it makes it difficult. But for the comics, they get desperate and they start dropping F-bombs. Right. Right? They get dirty because they get that shock reaction. The audience may titter and they may react when you're dropping F-bombs right and left. But that's a cop-out. Oh, that's not comedy. Yes. Right. Exactly. Good Good call, Joel. It is, you, you have to earn the respect and the engagement with the audience and too many beginners freak out or they don't work, they don't have the work ethic, and they immediately just, you know, oh, my freaking wife went to the freaking store to get me some freaking bread. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's not comedy. Right. I, I, I was lucky, I don't say lucky or fortunate, but uh, since I went to the corporate route first, I mean, I was the you know corporate first as a lawyer, and then I wanted to bring comedy to that scene, you, you couldn't just drop F-bombs in, in a comedy, in a corporate setting. Yeah. I mean, you're not going to get paid for comedy. It's a whole nother beast. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You, you have to be clean. You can make allusions to and references and dance around things, but you got to be very careful on how you do that. Cause they don't want it to be crass, you know, uh, in that kind of setting. Now I interviewed, uh, Felipe Medina. He's a comedy writer for, uh, Stephen Colbert. And he told me the number one rule in comedy was you always punch up. Now, I am wondering, is that true anymore today? In our cancel culture, where it just seems like even if you punch up, that's not even fair game. Any thoughts on our cancel culture and insulting even the higher powers? Well, I'm not one to get into that subject because I'll get on a soapbox and go nuts. Uh, (laughs) Politically speaking, I think one of the worst things that ever happened to entertainment in Hollywood is the uh, woke... um, feelings that people have in this woke society and what's sad is the people in hollywood are driving it right and they're 
they're shooting themselves in the foot. They're just so damn stupid. But the what he's talking about is that your your job as an entertainer is to lift people up and not beat them down. And yes, there's been a few successful entertainers that beat down on people. But even the famous, I'm an older guy, Don Rickles right, right. would spend his whole set picking on everybody in the room because his theory was we're all human beings. If I pick on everybody, we all see our own flaws and it brings us up as a group. But how would he do today? I think he'd be canceled. I mean, I, I'm not sure that is, is that. Can you even do that now? Yeah, I don't think, you know, going up and talking about African-Americans and, and eating chicken and watermelon no. like he used to do would, would go over, right? But he meant it as a way to connect everybody. But in today's woke culture, they don't take, they don't have the patience to understand what's happening. It's all quick judgment. Um, it's it's so funny. It's it's uh, it, it's kind of a judgmental society. It's it's. And what's great is the woke people think, no, we're trying to open this up to everybody. No, what you're doing is you're trying to bring it down to that narrow, think like I think, or you're a bad person. Right, right, right. And that's just, that's just wrong. I, I, I mean, Jerry Seinfeld, I'm not sure a lot of Jerry Seinfeld's jokes would work anymore in today's day and age. Not to mention Archie Bunker and, you know, all in the family. I have no idea how that would even be allowed on TV today. So, yeah, you wonder, what are we doing today that future generations will look at us and say, I can't believe those guys in 2022 were so offensive and crass. It's like, what? I, I, it's almost impossible to predict the future. Well, see, I see it differently, Joel. I don't think that they'll think the uh, entertainers were crass. They're going to think, what was wrong with that audience? Why didn't they? Why weren't they able to laugh at themselves? I mean, if you can't laugh at yourself, how is it fair to laugh at anything else, right? That is true. We, you know, it, it, it's the best thing a comic can do in the beginning of a set to relate to an audience is a little self-deprecation. Right. You know, that's why Louis Anderson always mentioned his weight, or or, or you know, uh, Jerry or, or Mark Schiff, some of these other famous guys would talk about being Jewish. It was a way to try to help the audience see them for who they were instead of uh, some, you know, I'm not going to be what you want me to be. I have to be real. I have to be true. Right. So uh, finally here, I'm just curious, you mentioned this a little bit on your side, but you've obviously seen a, a lot of comics and, and the list here is just a Hall of Fame list. But which one made you laugh the loudest? <laughs> well, I get asked that a lot, and I and I appreciate the reason for the question, but I have to share that I, there's I have two answers to that. One is you can't pick a favorite because comedy is so different that Robin Williams was different than Seinfeld, that was different than Bob Saget, that was different from Dana Carvey, who was different than Elaine Boozler or uh, a Diane Nichols. There is always a different type of comedy that they're bringing to the stage. I'm also a big fan of the variety art. So there's been some terrific comic magicians like Harry Anderson okay. or ventriloquists like Jay Johnson from the soap TV show. They all work for me. Um, I even once had a professional tap dancer. I mean, anything that entertains an audience and makes them laugh is, is game, right? But the other part of your answer is everybody go to the Googler and look up Larry Miller. 
Now, Larry Miller is a famous actor. Right. He's done over 100 TV shows and movies. If you Google him, you'll see his face. You go, oh, that guy. He was in the movie Pretty Woman. Uh, he always plays a principal or a cop or something. But here's the thing. When it came to stand-up comedy, he came out of New York. One of the funniest guys ever on stage. And what's interesting, Joel, is he wouldn't do well in today's audience because he wasn't a joke guy like Stephen Wright, where it was joke, 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 joke. Or Robin Williams right. just throwing out so much machine gun stuff that some of it's going to hit. Larry would tell 10 and 20 minute stories. And those stories were so funny all the way through that when you got to the payoff, you were in tears. Right, right, right. But not a lot of people could do that. Um, but if you Google Larry Miller and get his 12 stages of drinking or his snow skiing story, they're, they're not little cute two-minute, three-minute jokes. They're like 20-minute stories that have you laughing all the way through. So even though I have a lot of popular and not-so-famous comics that I think were amazing, uh, Larry's still one of the, the in the top. He's, All right. he's amazing. I will Google Larry Miller. In fact, I already have. That's the beauty of it. Like I said, the internet. I, while you're talking, I can go ahead and do what you recommended if you're driving. So you see who I, you recognize him, right? Absolutely, I recognize him. I can even hear his voice in my head right now as I'm as I looking at his picture. He was, he was an incredible storyteller. But, you know, again, what's great about the art form of stand-up comedy is whether you're doing prop comedy like Bruce Babyman Bomb or story comedy like um, Larry Miller or um, situational comedy like Jerry Seinfeld, uh, there's comic musicians. Dana Carvey was a huge comic musician, uh, but also did voices and impressions. Kevin Pollack did impressions. Uh, each of those guys was super successful and super funny in their own right, and yet totally different from each other, now, right? Right, right. Now, now, I apologize, but you said squirrel, and I immediately looked for the squirrel. You got me sidetracked from the very beginning of my podcast, so I apologize I didn't get to it. I want to know what you are doing now. So I know where you started off with the whole, I'm going to buy myself a submarine to do scuba diving or you know, water skiing, <laughs> not to show the best business plan, but what are you doing now? So um, I own an insurance agency the last uh, 15 or so years. I just sold it and retired. Um, I told you I wrote the book and I started a podcast a right. couple of years ago. But now that I'm retired, I have three podcasts and I have a new, I just launched a new website that everybody in your audience would love. It's uh, called the Stand Up Comedy Podcast Network. Okay. Stand Up Comedy Podcast Network. And if you go there, I have over 10 different comedy-based podcasts, either about, by, or done by stand-up comics. There's videos of all these famous people that I talked about uh, working my clubs. There's audio promos of a lot of famous and not-so-famous funny people. Uh, there's a joke of the day. There's an online comedy course for amateurs that want to go pro. So this new uh, comedy network is a way that I'm putting a lot of energy into is my way of trying to give back to the audiences and, and share my joy of this art form. All right. Well, we'll make sure to put the links there in our show notes for this podcast. Hey, thank you so much for joining us today. I, I love your stories. I would really love to be at a conference with you where you're just sitting around talking. 
I could listen to you talk all night about your stories. Well, it, I've I've been very blessed. I've had a lot of fun. Do, do we have time for one more quick one? Absolutely. So it's early 1981. Uh, it was a Wednesday night. There's only about uh, 18 people in the audience. The headliner was Gary Shandling. And about halfway through his show, one of the male audience members got up and went to the bathroom. And Gary just stopped and goes, well, that's way too high percentage of the audience. Tell you what, come with me. And he took all the other 17 people, men and women, into the men's room. And this poor guy's at the urinal trying to do his business. <laughs> Gary goes and stands right behind him and goes on with his set like nothing is wrong. Talk about a special moment for those 18 people. Wow. Uh, and we did make sure the guy washed his hands. <laughs> Great Seinfeld reference there at the end. I got the Seinfeld reference. Um, that is hilarious. <laughs> All right. Yeah. No, I mean, you know, there was a lot of magical moments, and, and uh, it's a pleasure <laughs> to be able to share those with you and your audience, Joe. All right. Thank you so much. I'll make sure you check out the, your, your website and the network. Thank you so much for being on our podcast, and great luck in the future. Oh, thank you so much, sir, and continued success. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a five-star review. We need your love to help us continue highlighting the funnier side of the law. I want to give a special shout-out to our Vice President of Operations, Wendy Oster, without whom this entire operation would be a complete and utter mess. Sean Wynn and 15.5 Features for making me sound way better than I actually do. Brooke Bolin for our marketing efforts. And Ryan Kuhn and Paul Kuhn of Tri. Plus City Marketing for our technical and computer support.